Alma shivered, and the Countess took hold of her hands in the dark. Fodor felt a rush of cold air. In case Alma was blowing on him, he pulled her head onto his shoulder and covered her mouth with his hands. The three of them held still. The breezes stopped. In the library a little later, Fodor saw Alma turn towards Florence Hall, who was sitting next to her on the settee, and blow on her neck. He caught Alma's eye. She knew that he had seen her. Mrs. Fielding's mouth, he noted, was a round O. Fodor kept quiet. He reflected that Alma might, mischievously, have been checking whether her investigators could distinguish between natural and supernatural wafts of air. It is very difficult to suppress the urge of experimenting and blowing when breezes are claimed, he wrote. The fact that she blew need not necessarily rule out a psychic breeze or mean that she tried to deceive us. He and Wilfred Becker had fooled each other with puffs of air during one of Harry Brown's sittings. But Fodor knew he was struggling to excuse Alma's trick. He instructed Florence Hall to watch Alma for suspicious movements when she was next at the Institute. ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Jay, and I am joined by Nick Ferrant and Rory Wicks. Hey. hey! On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. How's everybody doing today? Ah, uh, I'm recovering from a COVID shot. Yeah, that's but true. It, that's a good thing, though. Yeah, yeah. vaccination. Yeah, I'm doing. I'm doing okay. I uh, I did three straight hours of yard work in 90 degree weather. Because you're an insane person. Yeah, but I got so much done. The backyard is finally looking good, and now I get to turn my attention to the front yard, which is so much worse. See, this is what I'm not looking forward to when I do inevitably become a homeowner because, one, I hate yard work, and two, I hate yard work. Let's just do the absolute bare minimum of it. Just, just you know what you do is you get rid of all the grass and all the plants, all that stuff, and you just have a gravel lot. You just fill it with gravel. That's why I like the houses in Vegas, man. It's all dirt. Yeah. I I was thinking we mow the grass once a month, and that's literally the only thing we do. Yeah, but we could get fined if it gets too long. Also, if it gets too long, it'll burn out your mower engine. All right, so we'll mow it when we have to mow it. We don't have to. We don't have to have fucking garden boxes like we're goddamn Marge Simpson. Yeah, I like my garden boxes. Yeah, and that's fine for you. I don't want them. Yeah, and again, you're a crazy person. I. I can't argue that. So, okay. (laughs) Look, dogs are also a lot of work, but you can pet them and take them on walks and their companions and shit. Flowers are freeloaders. You will never know the joy 
of planting a little seedling and with care and attention, raising it up into a plant that immediately dies for no fucking reason. Correct. I will never know that because I don't want that misery that you just described. Life and death. It's right before you. It's like poetry. Look, sometimes I I have sometimes (laughs) I have potted plants and we all see how that works out. I mean, the last time you had a potted plant, it worked out great till the cat broke the pot. Rest in peace, Sir Barrick. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot that was the plant. Sir Barrick the Spearmint plant. And, and to be fair, I do plan on having a garden of sorts when I do have my house. It's going to be an herb garden for my magic. Just buy one of those above ground planter boxes. You can do it all in there. That's exactly what I plan on doing. We begin our tale in a modest house in England, where an ordinary family, Mom Alma, Dad Leslie, Son Donald, and their tenant George, are suddenly beset by moving furniture, flying eggs and dishes, and frightening noises in the dark. Baffled by these events, the Fieldings contact the press to document what's going on. Doing so attracts spiritualists, psychical researchers, mediums, charlatans, and random nobodies. At the time in England, spiritualism, the existence of ghosts, and all of the various techniques that went into hunting and documenting them had become a bit of a craze, and you couldn't swing a cat without hitting six people claiming to be mediums. None of these people can manage to make the problem go away, but they seem to come up with one cohesive answer. The center of the phenomenon is Alma Fielding, the mother and wife of the family. The levitation of objects and the peaks in the phenomenon seem to correspond with declines in her health or loss of control of her temper. Many of the moving objects follow her from room to room or down the stairs. Frequently, dishes she's holding simply fly out of her hands. She and her family are becoming increasingly frightened. As the incidents continue, crowds of nosy citizens flock to the house, eager to catch a glimpse of the obnoxious phantom. Among them, however, is a different kind of voyeur. Paranormal researcher and current fringe group pariah, Nandor Fodor, arrives to investigate and give his expert opinion. Some background on our two main players. Alma Fielding was a housewife and mother and was no stranger to overwhelming stress. As a young woman, a bicycle accident did permanent damage to her kidneys, which began developing painful and dangerous abscesses. She had to have multiple invasive surgeries in order to drain them and preserve her health. Through a contaminated toothbrush, she contracted anthrax poisoning and lost all of her teeth, forcing her to use dentures. She lost her left breast to cancer and allegedly knew about it due to visions of her dead grandfather marking the spot with an X. Later in the book, we learn that she lost two children in infancy. From the beginning, Alma is shown as repressed, bored, and frustrated, seemingly trapped in her home and in her life. Nandor Fodor has had similar ups and downs throughout his life. Born in Austria-Hungary as an ethnic Jew, he witnessed the destruction of World War I and the dissolution of his homeland. After a failed career in America, he brought his wife and child to England and began to pursue paranormal research. 
partly driven by his own supernormal experiences. Eventually partnering with the Institute for Psychical Research, Nandor made the following conclusions. Spiritualism, the belief in the survival of the individual's soul after death and its ability to communicate from beyond the veil, was a false ideology and that the soul does not maintain any individual characteristics after passing from the mortal coil. Additionally, he began to believe that most mediums were scam artists and frauds. This second opinion, however, landed him in serious trouble with his community. He was labeled as a cynic, and many believed that his exposure of frauds was doing more harm than good and that he should learn to let these things be. In many ways, Alma Fielding was his last chance. Let's uh, stop there and get into our very first discussion question. Um, about that in particular. Uh, and by that, I mean the wide, wide, wide range of frauds that we encounter in this book and in the kind of spiritualist movement in general. Uh, Fodor becomes increasingly discouraged about the possibility of the surviving spirit that that idea that the soul maintains its characteristics after death and that a dead person can communicate with the living. And in the wake of these exposures, he he starts to kind of lose any belief in that and in kind of in mediumship in general. And that's especially disheartening seeing how many of them were very convincing and that Fodor and a lot of the other people associated with the Institute and with spiritualism were gaining a lot of emotional benefit from those talks. We in the modern age know that uh, the Fox sisters, the founders of, emo- of spiritualism in America, were frauds. We know that most of the celebrity mediums we encounter on TV and on radio shows over here are frauds. Uh, my actual question is, do you guys ever find these frauds discouraging to your belief or to your experience within this stuff? And how how does the existence of these fraudulent people kind of fit into your larger picture of what's going on? So I'll go first because I I have an opinion here. <clears throat> you too? I know. My God. Um. So, no, I don't think the existence of frauds in general discourages me for a couple of reasons. One, I feel like I'm a pretty good judge of character when it comes to who I would let do that kind of reading for me, right? So, for example, we actually went to a psychic fair what, like a couple weeks ago? Yeah. In which uh, there was a bunch of mediums and psychics and, you know, they were all there. And uh, Jay and I actually got a reading from a medium. Yep. And this was my first real experience with a medium. And I, honest to God, wasn't going to, I wasn't going to do it because I just, I, I, I guess if I'm going to be completely honest, the reason why I didn't want to do it is because I know I wear my emotions on my sleeves and there are certain things that uh, I, that are usually pretty easy for mediums to pick up on that they could catch with me and then uh, I wouldn't be able to control my emotions. Uh, and speaking honestly, that's exactly what happened. Yes. But 
I think personally that I had done like a great job of holding myself together so that there wasn't much to read on me from her at the time. But like what I was afraid of was that she would be in contact with my grandma, whatever. And uh, then out of nowhere, she pulls that. And that was kind of convincing to me, right? Because I had gone out of my way to try and almost block myself off. And then she pulled it, you know, she still was able to pull that out. Which might say more about my inability to protect myself than her ability to uh, communicate with the dead. Yeah. But that that's neither here nor there. The experience I had was good. Like okay. It was an overall positive experience, right? If she turned okay. out to be a fraud, that that's fine. Ultimately, my experience was good. Okay. So how does that fit in my larger picture of the of the of the phenomenon of whatever mediums, psychics, if they're real, which I believe that there is real people out there that are in tune with that. I believe that that's them being more in tune with the greater consciousness, right? Because they get or they can tap into something that lets them communicate, see, witness, feel, hear, whatever sense it is that they utilize, even auto writing, whatever it might be, that they are able to tap into something because a big part of that, of all of this medium of mediums, of psychics, of all of those kind of divining tools is meditation. And we know, we know that meditation is a huge part in seeking your enlightenment of whatever type it is, be it gnosis, nirvana, whatever. Yeah. No matter what you're doing, even for just mental health, examining your own thoughts is important. Yeah, absolutely. And so if we we know, we believe, whatever, that uh, that meditation is part of that, that tool and that getting to that, that mindset is what opens your third eye, what opens your mind to the greater conscious. If they're able to do that on a whim, which a lot of mediums and psychics are able to do, then that's just what's happening. Now like everything else in the world, people are going to jump on that. People who want to make a buck, you know, people who want, who just like manipulating people. I, I, I don't know what their motivation might be. I think it's shitty when people are frauds about that stuff, when they play on people's emotions like that. But unfortunately for us, it's human nature right now because, and I think this actually goes back to something that we talked about last episode. I think the re a big part of why that is, is because we as a people have not evolved enough to a higher consciousness to be able to not even want to do that kind of thing. Right. We haven't, we haven't put greed aside, especially here right. in the West. Oh yeah. Uh, it's so much so it's basically our greatest virtue. So I guess that was the my long-winded ramble about so I believe in I believe in psychics, I believe in mediums. There I've had experiences from other people and myself that leave me to believe that it's possible. So the fact that there are frauds if anything motivates it more because they see that there's potential there because there's truth there. Okay, interesting. Um and I think for me just to build off that, I I don't give a I don't give a shit for two reasons. Uh, one is exactly what Rory was getting at there, um, or one of the points Rory made there. 
Uh, and for this, I was thinking about kind of spiritualism in the post-World War One world, because in the book, Kate Summerscale brings up often uh, that, you know, there was a big surge in spiritualism and mediumship after World War One, mostly because there was a lot of customers. There was a lot of people out looking to connect with their lost soldiers. Um and all I could think about is if I imagine if I had a son who went off to the front, I never got a body back. I never saw him again. I just know, yeah, he died. His body is probably buried in a trench somewhere. But what I'm think what I'm thinking is if let's say I go to a medium, she contacts my dead son and tells my wife and I, your son loves you. He's at peace. He's safe. And then I go home and I go to bed and I feel at peace. I feel more closer to healing and closer through the morning process than I was before. And I go to maybe go to my grave believing that that woman was real. It doesn't matter if she was a fraud. She did provide a real service there. She has brought peace in a situation where really there is there is is no potential closure. You know, it's they're not going to go on a one one man war against Germany. Yeah, Um, that's a good point. That's assuming that they, you know, are from London. They're not Germans themselves. But uh, the other reason it doesn't bother me is the people who the people who i've met in my life who i i believe have i guess quote the gifts they have something extra going on don't be wrong i believe just about anyone can do this sort of stuff with the proper meditation uh building up your consciousness things like that i think this is just part of the human condition that we've yet to explore too much but i think there are some people who you know win that psychic genetic lottery and come out you know a little ahead um and the people i've met in my life who are like that there, it's been stressed to me many times. Is this these gifts don't perform? And what I what I mean by that is often enough they don't get to choose what spirit they're going to talk to or when in when these insights are going to hit. It just happens. It's more like uh, being ridden than having a tool that you're using. Yeah, and so basically, though, m- my point being, I think that there's a solid chance that many mediums, especially the frauds, um. What if they're, they? it's a little of both? It, we we got to get away from this either or. It's both and in that what if they are a medium? They've had real experiences. They've had real insights. But now they're, they got to make a living off of it. They have to be able to make that trick perform. And if it's not, you got to do whatever you need to to make ends meet. Once that, you know, once that empty fridge is on the line, that that upcoming rent payment is on the line, it becomes really easy to start relaxing some of your morals uh, because, you know, people don't want to die or end up on the street. I mean, kind of building on that in a way or using a uh, popular example, Professor Trelawney from the Harry Potter series was the divination teacher who had only ever had accurate pros- prophecies twice. Yeah. Well, and so, and well, and let me, let me make one thing clear. When I say I don't give a shit, um, I'm not saying everyone should be frauds, get out there and do it. What I'm saying is it doesn't impact my belief. And yeah. or I guess not even belief my suspicion that the the phenomenon is is real and the re and again the reason is is I don't see those two things as mutually exclusive I think it's quite possible it's both and that many are frauds and they've had moments of genuine psychic insight and I think that's also in this book I think that's a great that's a great description of what we see with Alma throughout this entire book yeah yep. that's yep. fair because. There's some of the shit that she did that it's like that cannot be explained 
very easily by her by her trying to fake this. No. Some of this shit is just a little too weird. Well, and it's like some of the manifestations at the start of the book before Fodor really even got involved are my favorite ones because they're the most inexplicable ones. Yeah. Um, like, yep. Yep. A, a room full of people seeing a, a saucer and a tea tray float behind her. Was that with all the news people? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah, um, yeah. that time when someone came over to the house to observe the phenomenon and Alma came out of her bedroom and a bunch of shit from her bathroom was like bouncing along the floor behind her, just following her around like a pack of puppies. And at this point, she was just numb to it. And she was like, yeah, that's that's been happening all day. Um, my, like, well, my favorite one is Alma wasn't even physically there. She was inside the house. Okay, so as news of the, the poltergeist started to spread, random looky-loos started gathering outside of the fielding home. Those random nobodies I yeah. mentioned. Yeah, and uh, so they, the police came to kind of establish a perimeter between the house and the looky-loos. And while Alma was inside the house, a police officer walking by up front was accosted by the doormat. It flew yep. up yeah. and wrapped around his head. I and love that one. No, that's my favorite manifestation yeah. of the whole book because Alma wasn't even there. I don't know what the heck caused that. Yeah. The poltergeist. And, yeah. And Jimmy. Like, yeah. And the poltergeist of, Jimmy. Yeah. It, Fodor names the thing Jimmy. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, like that's one of the ones where like George and Leslie and Don, the, the son Donald, you could all claim that they were maybe lying for her to try and play along with whatever fucking weird thing mom is doing. That policeman had no goddamn reason to make that up. Yeah. And he, by all accounts, he was terrified and confused. Yeah. I mean, well, and. I think anything that happened in the fielding house to me has more credence than the stuff that happened later at the Institute. Yeah. Because I think at the fielding house, uh, we'll get into this, yeah. I'm sure. So you're getting ahead. You're getting ahead. I, ahead I, of the game. I, I'm sorry. I'm excited. I, I do really enjoy this book. With Alma's consent, Fodor and his many colleagues at the National Institute for Psychical Research begin conducting seances and experiments on Alma. They're trying to determine what's at play here and how they can help. During these seances and on various outings into London, Alma shows a great talent for summoning a ports, random objects that appear out of thin air at the behest of Alma's poltergeist, Jimmy. Insects, mice, stones, coins, and jewelry all start falling out of Alma's clothes. A bunch of roses manifests in her lap in a movie theater. Stolen rings and pearl necklaces are discovered on her person, allegedly stolen by Jimmy from various stores she's visited. Alma even appears to astral project across the city, going from the movie theater to the Institute's main building where she's seen by a taxi driver. Later, while in the Institute, she allegedly steps out of her body and returns to her home, where Lieutenant George claims that he saw her and took messages from her in her astral form. Meanwhile, back home, new phenomenon begin appearing in the fielding house. At night, Alma is being visited by an incubus, an invisible creature that crawls into her bed and then forces itself on her. Alma describes these encounters to Fodor, who listens a bit too eagerly. But slowly, the pieces stop fitting together. Holes appear in Alma's claims and becomes increasingly evident that her apports were smuggled in to stage the phenomenon. Even as the inside of her head grows more crowded, Jimmy is joined by a Persian man named Bremba and then later by a small child of indeterminate origins, and Fodor grows more skeptical. 
Alma is routinely physically searched by Institute members, including Fodor himself, and slowly the evidence paints a mildly disturbing picture. Alma has been hiding things inside her vagina in order to smuggle them into the seance room and then births the apports at random or convenient times. On one particularly intense night, her belly swells up as if she's become pregnant, pulsing and a heartbeat can be heard from inside her and she seems to be in terrible pain. Alas, it seems that this too was staged. A linen cloth falls from her skirt and inside are some of her standard apports. Last episode on Passport to Magonia, we had a really cool talk about uh, sex and how it relates to the supernatural. And it seems that we have revisited that topic in the pages of this book. Uh, In Fodor's opinion, many of the female mediums that we encounter uh, become visibly aroused while manifesting their gifts. Uh, Hilda Lewis, the woman who was later exposed as a fraud but made a name for herself as a flower medium because she was, you know, summoning those bunches of flowers as apports during her seances. Uh, She was known for creating an erotically charged atmosphere and... uh, it, it seems that there was just a very sexual edge to a lot of the things that she was doing. And a lot of the examinations of Alma Fielding, like by Fodor and by other Institute members, take on this very sexually frustrated tone, especially as it gets to the point where it's like, well, we've reached the point where we need to start examining her internally, but we can't do that because it's improper. But, oh, do I want to? But I can't. I mustn't. But I must. And that whole thing. Um, and, of of course, eventually she begins being she begins being assaulted by this incubus and there's the whole element that her husband's impotent and she seems to be kind of sexually fixated on the tenant george who was it was it george or don that was that was sleeping in there it was george okay And, and and important note there so george George, when he started sleeping at the foot of the Fielding's bed, that was not by Alma's request. That was by request of her husband, Les, because he was terrified of his wife. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Alma is, after a while, Alma begins being uh, allegedly sexually violated by this invisible presence. Her husband is impotent, and she seems to have a lot of repressed sexual feelings for the tenant, George, who later starts sleeping at the foot of the couple's bed what to fucking great Dane <laughs> to protect Leslie from Alma <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> and that that comes up over and over again in the book is these elements of repressed sexuality. Uh, we were talking before recording, we were talking about how a lot of the female mediums had experienced sexual assault and formative years of their childhood and poltergeist activity seem to be centered around a lot of that uh so what do we think about that about the possibility of a tangible connection between sexuality and sex and like and this psychic sort of poltergeist phenomenon um is like like it is that is that true? Like, what does that what does that say about the larger phenomenon? 
or is there a possibility that this was just this was just Fodor's very particular analysis of the evidence and what we're getting is skewed by his psyche? So I don't think it's that latter thing, but mind you, that's based off of just my assumption that he did not know the full backstory of the Countess. That's uh, fair. The Countess was one of the mediums who was a member of the Institute and was a very close friend of Alma's throughout all this testing. Uh-huh. And she also was sexually assaulted in her childhood. I don't know if Fodor was ever aware of that, though. I think that's something that Kate Summerscale, the author, dug up in her research, but I don't know for sure. Um, I will say it is an interesting idea. I don't, I've never considered any kind of overlap between psychic phenomenon and sexual assault. Um, However, they did in the book bring up a pretty interesting point. I have a quote here. Uh, this is from page 100. If there are devils, said the American philosopher and psychical researcher William James in a lecture in 1896, if there are supernormal powers, it is through the cracked and fragmented self that they enter. In psychic science, one fraudulent act did not invalidate all the medium's claims. The transcendent and tawdry were often united in one psyche. And I, I just want to fixate there on the it is through the cracked and fragmented self that they enter. I, it it brings to mind this kind of interesting idea of what if, you know, like we were talking about back with uh, Strange Frequencies by Peter Biebergall, how in order to really make a spirit box, something that communicates with the outside world or communicates with the spirit world, you have to break a radio effectively. Yeah. Uh, well, here we are turning a person into a medium by breaking their mind a little. And what if there is something to that, that by that our status quo is to be here in the physical grounded materialist reality and why we see this overlap is because uh, you need to have your mind broken a little to open up to that world. You need to have a severe trauma. And as most mediums tended to be women in the 1800s, there was an awful lot of women who experienced sexual assault. Uh, I mean, that, yeah. there's an awful lot that experience it today, of course. But I mean, from what little numbers I can look up, it, I mean, they don't even really know how many people back then suffered it because it wasn't even a question you asked. You know, often enough, it wasn't even a crime if it was done to you. So... I, I am curious. I'd love to see some, you know, some scientific studies of the overlaps of childhood in general, I guess, just trauma, not specifically sexual trauma and the psychic abilities. Um, but, yeah, no, I had never encountered, I guess, that oh, that idea before. I mean, it's it's fascinating. I don't know what to make of it. So I actually am going to. Do something uh, uncommon here. I'm going to disagree with you, Nick. <gasps> yeah. I think a big part of why what we see in terms of research from this case comes from Fodor's uh, love affair with Freud. Yeah. Because Freud, everything is sexual. Yeah. And with Fodor, everything came back to sex. It was brought up. So much in this book in terms of like reasoning, why, whatever. I think that the reason why that was such a big center point for his study or why he brought it up so much or why he thought this was a reasoning is because he was influenced so heavily by Freud. Now, do I believe that there is a connect uh, connection between psychic phenomenon and sex? Yes. 
but not for the reasons that Fodor does. I don't believe that sex or sexual assault necessarily open up your mind to the ability to have psychic experiences. Um, any kind of near-death experience can do that. Okay. You know, any kind. I mean, it's that's that is written like shown mm-hmm. in a lot of studies that people with uh, near-death experiences have had more supernatural experiences. Yeah, I uh, I can attest to that. So can I. Yeah. Your yours is a little different. Mine being from drug use. Yours being from an accident, but still. Mm-hmm. Um. Now, when it comes to sex and and psychic phenomenon, people use sex in their magical practice all the time. Yeah, and that's kind of why I wanted to have this discussion. Because- and, yeah, and I think that's perfectly fine and perfectly normal, be it sex with another or even just masturbation. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is becoming even really popular now with uh, the certain resurgence in chaos magic. There's a lot of people following the ecstatic path, which part of that is... Once you created your your spell, effectively, your sigil, your intent, you fire it off into your subconscious at a moment of gnosis when there is no when you are at one with the universe and a way to in uh, according to a lot of chaos magicians, the way to kind of jury rig that is to jerk off. Yeah. It's orgasm. At the moment that you orgasm, you are one with everything. And that's when you fire and, off the spell. And that, I think, is kind of what I'm getting at with it is I. I just want to try and uh, and obviously we won't do that because we don't have PhDs in evolutionary psychology. But it's like, why? Why is there that persistent belief in people that sex is this uniquely powerful force that can get us to transcend the physical, especially when you consider that it's like, is it sex an innately physical thing? So why do we believe that it's this that it's this uniquely special bridge out of the ordinary and into the supernatural? Like I just and I'm not it's not that's not me condemning it necessarily. I think I'm just a little baffled by it. You, you know, I think it it might have to do with two things. One, it is something you can do by yourself with no tools, no magic spells, nothing <laughs> that makes you feel great. Yeah. You know, that makes it that's awesome. That makes you feel awesome. And now there is a kind of magic in that. I don't know when I discovered masturbation, I certainly thought it was magical. Um, but I think the other answer there is uh it's tied in procreation. Think about it. sex is it is the <laughs> sex birthing, yes, it, we know now it's a very biological process, but even still it's miraculous. It's it's you have these people coming together who seemingly from, quote, nothing are making this whole new life. There is something very magical about that process. Granted, also, you know, bloody, horrifying uh, body horror. But, you know, it's part of it. Yeah. And that and that thing you said about procreation, that's especially interesting here, because uh, to give to give a little bit more depth to my summary uh, Fodor at some point during the investigation, and we don't know when exactly because it's not 
it's just sort of dropped in there in part two of the book that it's written in his notes at one point that he's like, she had two children who both died before they were two. One who died, one who was to be named June that died when she was three months old and a boy called Peter Lawrence that passed away when he was 15 months old. And mind you, there's no evidence of the baby girl. There's no evidence of the baby girl. That's what they said. They could find no trace that the baby girl existed. Which is doubly interesting given how, again, that that air of like sex and birth that so many of Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Alma's apports take on because she described summoning an apport as like giving birth. And she, you know, she was she was hiding things in her genitals. Well, and often and, objects would come uh once they are poured it in would be warm and wet. Yes. So, which granted might have been because she was smuggling them in her vagina, but you know, it does kind of add to that birthing uh yeah. imagery. And um and there was another there was another medium, one that Fodor dismissed as a crazy person that was making things up for attention who said that during uh like during her uh mediums her mediumships her seances yeah her yeah there was that that medium that fodor dismissed as a crazy person making up stories who during her seances would describe being in labor pains and she would feel like her womb was being manipulated and massaged and then the the finch that they are fairly certain almost smuggled in tied to her thigh mm-hmm. that was uh, and she and her her spirit guide bremba the the persian man mm-hmm. uh said oh that wasn't a bird at all that was the soul of an aborted child and maybe the little girl was an abortion she was forced to have that's why there's no record that would be interesting. It could uh, be. Well, if we're going to go with Fodor's assessment that the haunting is really a, kind of a, a representation of Alma's unresolved trauma, and she, we have no record of this little girl, and uh, but we outside of Alma supposedly told Fodor that she lost her at one point, maybe it was either a miscarriage or maybe less forced her to have an abortion. Maybe she had an abortion because she slept with George. That was that was what I was wondering is uh, is if she got pregnant by somebody who wasn't her husband and it was and it was either a miscarriage or it was terminated because they didn't. I will clarify. Bremba didn't specifically say it was aborted. Bremba said it was the soul of an unborn child who was unwanted. That doesn't necessarily mean it was terminated. It means it didn't go to term and it wouldn't have been wanted if it did. Um, also, interestingly enough, in the first chapter of the book, before Fodor shows up, uh, one of the mediums that one of the other mediums that was coming to the house to try and figure out what was going on uh, told Alma and Leslie that there was a bunch of corpses of murdered babies hidden in the well oh, in their yeah. backyard. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And uh, then later, that whole thing came up of just like, oh, Alma has two dead children that she's never mentioned before. And I'm kind of sitting there going like, is there another reason why that statement freaked Alma out so much? Oh, God, I hope not. I mean, there's a lot. There was 
I think there was a lot of trauma that Alma had that even so, like even wasn't brought up in the book just because, I mean, product of her time, I'm sure she didn't have an easy go and then she had a whole lot of shit happen to her. Yeah, well, it's not just the medical issues alone. Yeah. She, uh, I mean, she had, she had a, she at one point got an infection in her gums where her gums turned black. Yeah. And she then, got, it was arsenic. Yeah. And they had to anthrax. remove anthrax, anthrax poisoning yeah. and they had to remove all her teeth. So she had dentures. Uh huh. Yeah. That I meant. Yeah. I mentioned that in the first part of my yeah. summary. And then, and then later yeah. on, didn't, it, when she was older, didn't she also get diverticulitis and have to get portions of her intestines removed? Yeah. Something like that. And breast cancer. And she had to have uh, some lesions on her kidneys drained seven different points in her life. Yep. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, like, she drew a lot of short sticks. Yep. Uh, actually, um, the thing with her teeth, um, right before all of the crazy shit started happening, uh, Leslie had all of a bunch of his teeth pulled, too. And that was part of Fodor's theory that he advanced, is he basically, in the... In the terms that they used at the time, he told Alma, he's like, I ba- that basically he thought she'd been triggered by the fact that her husband lost all of his teeth, too, and that that might have been why that shit started happening when it did. Either that or what we don't know is that teeth get in the way of psychic power. Someone get a pair of pliers. We're going to test this. Rory, hold still. No. Damn it. It's worth a try. I'm not drunk and or stoned enough for this. Please don't pull out my spouse's teeth. I want to give them superpowers. Ooh. Okay, now it's tempting. Yeah, see? This is for your own good. Was was (laughs) your first reaction just a knee-jerk to Nick's trying to do something to my mouth? Doesn't matter why he's doing it, just no. (laughs) Well, it was a knee-jerk reaction of Nick's trying to do something to me. (laughs) So, Uh... no. (laughs) <laughs> Nick's a savage. You shouldn't trust him. He shot me when we were when we were kids. He he used to shoot blow darts into me. I was a real good shot. Yeah, I got you though. Yeah, Nick, and keep that in mind. You shot them with blow darts, and they stayed. Yeah, where the fuck else were they gonna go? God damn, Nick! What the fuck is wrong with I you? I had lots more friends back then, and how many of them are still here? You. <laughs> Correct. So our discussion, our second discussion question for this section, uh, throughout this book, we get to track this developing theory of Fodor's, uh, not one of ghosts, but of externalized unconscious impulses that dress in human or mongoose disguises. <laughs> uh, earlier in the book, we visited Jeff, the talking mongoose, who gave an antagonistic voice to a man's sense of failure. Um There was a 16th century ghost of a nobleman that appeared to expose cracks in an unhappy marriage. And uh, the medium Eileen Garrett believed that her spirit guides may have actually been her may have actually been her own undermined, her own unconscious coming to the forefront and saying things she didn't consciously know. Uh, This Fodor believes is Alma's case as well. Uh, citing her long history of trauma and illness and the fact that the phenomenon worsened whenever she fell ill. In light of some of the other books we've read, uh, Strange Frequencies, Secret Teachers, and Passport to Magonia, uh, what are your thoughts on this interpretation of the evidence? Hmm. So, 
if I'm understanding your question correctly, Fodor, so what are my thoughts on the fact that when she became ill, the phenomena increased? Uh, basically, I was asking, what do you think of Fodor's interpretation that it's more likely that it's not ghosts or the spirits of the departed, but that it's our own mind stepping out of our body and dressing up like dead people in oh. order to do things? Okay. Well, first, I want to preface this step by saying Fodor is a hack. <laughs> and most of what he believes, I think, is a pile of garbage. But that's my personal preference, or that's my personal belief. Yeah. Now, I do think that there is, um, I guess, a little bit of weight to what he what he was saying, but I think he had it wrong. I Personally, I believe that he had it a little bit wrong. I don't think it's necessarily your mind stepping outside of you that's causing these things, but when we're ill, we're in a weakened state. Okay. Right? So any natural defenses, natural guard that we had is going to be down. Or okay. at least lowered. So the chance for activities increased. Now, I'm not saying that Alma is a, was 100% right, that everything that happened to her was, you know, ghosts or a poltergeist or whatever, because we know that's not true. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, Fodor tries to write off all of Alma's experiences because he can throw shade at it in one form or another. The thing is, I don't think that we should write off everything, especially not when she's ill, right? Yeah. I think that in those situations when it's going to be harder for her to be so, what's the word I'm thinking of here? I guess it's it's going to be harder for her to be a fraud in those situations. It would be harder for her to perform when yeah, she's, yeah. you know, dying of mild kidney failure. Right. So I think that I think that throughout most of this book, I think that Fodor started off mildly wanting to believe in the super, as he said, the supernatural. Um, but ultimately, I think he was just interested in in finding and proving that people were hacks and that they were frauds, and it makes it. Some of the things that he did, like, I mean, for four months, Alma was going to, like, three plus times a week going to these seances. Yeah. That's going to take a toll on somebody, of course, especially when she's getting, I mean, and especially because, one, she's motivated to go there because she's getting paid. And, two, she's getting attention. Yeah. And, but three... I mean, some of the things, like going through this kind of stuff that often when you're not experienced in it and you're not going to be protected, you know, on a spiritual level, it's going to take a huge toll on your mental health and your mental well-being. So, of course, shit went sideways and shit's crazy all over the place for her. You know, I I don't know. I think, I think, Fo I, I mean, I mentioned this to you guys before, but I think Fodor is the problem or at least a big part of the problem here. Okay, so... So do you think it's it's more likely that there are, in fact, actual ghosts? Like in real life? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't necessarily know that ghosts or spirits are are uh, like, you know, the, from that. The, I, I can't necessarily say that they're dead people because I haven't met one, you know, but 
I, 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 there's a lot of people that do believe it. And there's a lot of people that have shown some pretty convincing evidence that ghosts and spirits exist and they have nothing to do with the people that live in the house. You know, I mean, I've been watching kindred spirits and that show is pretty cool about showing how a lot of times ghosts or spirits, people think that it's their loved ones and it's not, it's just not, but it might still be somebody. Okay. Uh, Nick? Um, so regarding Fodor's theories, I guess I don't have as negative a view of him. I see him as part of the problem. Honestly, I read him more as somebody who was having a crisis of faith, and he had just basically pinned too many of his hopes on Alma. He wanted to find some proof that this was real, that they, he could find a real medium and he could prove it scientifically. And he decided, even at the beginning, end of part one, he had decided to pin everything on Alma. She was his golden calf. Yeah. And I think when uh, when it he started to catch her frauds, I think he just broke a little. I think it was kind of the, you know, the crisis of faith. And what we saw was ultimately a man who was mentally unwell caught in a perpetual sadomasochistic cycle with a woman who was deeply unwell. Okay. And they just fed each other perpetually. As regards to his theories, I I mean, I don't think Freud is correct. Let me, uh, let yeah. me make that very clear up front. Um, However, if you're again, if you're asking, do I think that trauma can lead to psychic uh, events or psychic abilities? Maybe I, I, I don't have any evidence against that. Uh, similarly, like the question of ghosts, you just asked Rory, uh, are ghosts dead people? I, I my answer to do I believe in ghosts is often uh, 50 million eyewitnesses wins any court case in the world. OK, so I believe there is something there. I don't. I, again, like Rory, I don't know what it is. I And this is coming from someone who I believe I've interacted with one. I have had experiences in my life that lead me to believe there is something going on there. Um, but I could easily just see, all right, well, I've had mental trauma. You know, I had a near-death experience. What if that's part of my subconscious acting out? What if that is somebody from the actual past who somehow gets momentarily, temporally displaced to the present? What if layers of reality are bleeding over between each other? We don't really know what ghosts are. Um, and there's so many possibilities yeah the, and well and that's kind of my i don't know if you kind of picked it up over the course of the show my whole modus operandi is it's okay to not know yeah say yeah. and saying you don't know is is one of the most important things you can do when you're involved in this world because the moment again it's like john keel the moment that you allow belief to enter the picture the phenomenon will act on that to codify that belief and by codifying it ensure you're never going to figure out what the fuck is going on and i'm not sure again i'm not even sure if i believe that but i i, I you know i guess i'll hedge my bets um i will say though the author does a pretty compelling job of in beautiful prose laying out the argument and to the point that by the end of the book i was like i can see where fodor is coming from in the sense that that again that idea of trauma leading to um psychic powers now whereas fodor thought it was that she was sexually assaulted the author suggests it might have been the loss of the children that did it and i wasn't in this question i was not asking about trauma causing psychic powers so much as I was asking specifically about his belief that 
pieces of our mind step outside of our body and don the guises of dead people in order to act out our suppressed emotions. You know, again, I come back to maybe. I, yeah. I, I've never experienced that, and but I would be fascinated to do a reading of some of my favorite ghost stories with that thought in mind. I will say this. You know what? Because you mentioned Passport to Magonia yes. uh, from the previous episode. And you know what this made me think about is Heronaba. Uh, the mm. uh, the woman who was we talked about it during the sex question on that episode. Yeah, the woman who was stalked by an incubus who kept trying to get in her pants and she kept refusing him. Yeah, um, and, I thought about him a lot while reading yeah. that section of all well, about her a lot. Reading about that the section of Alma's life when the incubus was assaulting her. Yeah, well, my thought is, what if uh, what was tormenting Heronima was a poltergeist? Was let's say, what if Fodor's correct? There, it's repressed. Um, sexual desire. I'm not saying that I think Hodor Fodor is correct. I'm not. I'm not saying Fodor is correct. But let's. If he was, I mean, that case right there certainly fits his profile. We have a woman of exceptional morals and quote purity, uh, living in a very repressive time for her gender, who is being accosted and tempted towards this wild, uh, lascivious affair with an otherworldly spirit, and she she refused. She resisted, but still. You could totally, if you're looking at this with your Fodor hat on, see that as, well, she's being tormented by her own repressed sexuality that she feels. Yeah. Granted, we can't interview a woman from 500 years ago, so we don't really know what was going on in her head. I feel like my biggest issue with a lot of Fodor's interpretation of all of this is that for him, it seems to all stem back to some kind of sexual trauma or sexual nature right like like nick said that fodor assumed that she'd been sexually assaulted and just didn't remember it right and i agree with what nick said there that and what the author said uh that it's more likely there was the loss of the children that that trauma because um that's Mm life-changing that is absolutely life-changing no matter how you shake it you know you lose a child no matter which side you're on, if you were connected to that, you know, it, it is, it, it's absolutely traumatizing. It is one of those traumas that the majority of human minds just do not have any sort of tools with which to address it. It is on a mm-hmm. biological level, something that goes against what is encoded into our DNA. Which reminds me of a uh, reminds me of a quote. Uh, which is from the book. And again, this is just because I, I really enjoyed the prose in this book. But a ghost was the sign of an unacknowledged horror. It indicated a gap opened by trauma, an event that because it had not been assimilated, uh, must be perpetually relived. There were no words. So there was a haunting. Uh, and the reason I wanted to bring that up is. I guess that quote takes us beyond sex into the sense of what events happen to us that we just stop speaking about after they happen yeah and what damage does that do our psyche does that manifest an external entity that's doing things or does it create the environment where you're going to believe that's possible and so like peter biebergall you complete the circuit and actual mystical events begin to happen and yeah and i think what we're looking at right here of this, this, this insistence of Fodor is uh, that it's all just the externalization of repressed emotions or unaddressed issues within our psyche. What we're actually looking at there is the schism between the psychical camp and the spiritualist camp, because um, 
the spiritualist camp believed basically exclusively in ghosts. They believed exclusively in dead entities returning from the other side and communicating with us into to deliver wisdom and guidance and whatever. And the psychical camp by and large believed that ghosts were bunk and that ghosts were a name for for that for unaddressed for unaddressed things that created these weird phenomenon and as we know uh fodor was not well liked in the spiritualist community at all because of his repeated exposure to fraud of frauds because uh the spiritualist movement you in a fascinating turn of events basically believed that you shouldn't expose fraudulent mediums because it did too much damage to the real ones and that you should just sort of like yeah we know she's lying let her lie which is actually one of my favorite kind of background pieces to the story so (laughs) so all right so you gotta remember all this is happening all this this intensive investigation these arguing the frauds well, World War II is looming. Like, it, yeah. it looming as in Hitler's on TV threatening to take Czechoslovakia. And the British government is repeatedly failing to do anything about it. And fascism is resurging in England as we speak as well. Yeah. So, and but meanwhile, while both of those major things are happening, Fodor takes the time to sue a spiritualist uh, magazine for libel because they they published an article about how he hates mediums and he's gonna and he's basically just out to prove frauds and he's trying to disprove us all and the entire time he was investigating alma going through all this drama and chaos he is actively still pursuing this lawsuit and i don't know why that struck me as absurdly funny but it did just because i could imagine you know you know, this courtroom meeting to discuss, well, did this psychic magazine uh, besmirch this man's good name? Well, over in Czechoslovakia, cities are burning and tanks are crushing bodies beneath their treads, which I guess, you know, that's that's happening today. We're sitting here talking about this and God knows what's happening around the world. And it, it also provides a completely different context for his refusal to let Alma go, even when the entire rest of the Institute was like, dude, she's fucking crazy. She may have some genuine psychic powers, but she is unhinged and we need to stop with this. But like you said, she was his golden calf. And like I said in my summary, she was his last hope for his career. And it's mentioned a few times that it's like, if Alma Fielding got exposed as a fraud, that would actually make it a lot more difficult for him to win his libel suit because it would be yet another medium that he had cynically exposed as a huckster instead of, you know, just allowing the wonder and the magic to continue. Actually, you, you just gave me an interesting thought. Cause we were, you know, I, earlier I mentioned Peter Beavergall and the whole idea of the occult imagination. Yeah. And <laughs> I can't believe he says, what if they're right? What if they were right to, to say those things about him? Because what if by disproving the frauds, you legit do weaken the net psychic power available because you're you're removing the conditions that allow people to believe in it? In a way, that kind of coincides with the idea of what they're doing is tapping into a universal yeah. consciousness. 
And that the more you say that this idea is impossible or these people are frauds, the more you take it away from everybody else. Yeah. So maybe, maybe Fodor uh, ruined psychic powers for everyone. No, fuck that. I disagree. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I have no evidence nor real stake in the arguments, so I'm not gonna not gonna die on this particular hill. I I think Fodor was a sad man who was trying very hard, but I mean, uh, of, of course he was sad. Look at his life. Uh, but I think sometimes, um, I think sometimes his dick became angry and started making <laughs> decisions for him instead of his brain because. Uh, and I, I do again, this is not something that I could find really any quotes that were the author directly implying this. This was more my read on the relationship. I definitely got a bit of of sexual tension between Alma and Fodor specifically. Uh, I think Fodor, I don't think he could have ever admitted it, but I think he was infatuated with Alma. Yes, he was. And See, I, I, I didn't I didn't read that, but I also like I don't know. No, I, I I also am not surprised that totally could have been there. I, I, I also but granted, I also when I read it, my first impression was it also went the other way. I think Alma was equally infatuated with him. I that and I can definitely see that even more so than the other way around for she sure. Called her husband impotent. Mm -hmm. She told Fodor, My husband can't fuck me anymore. Yeah. Mm, weird that you brought that up, Alma. Yeah. Weird I, that you brought that up. <laughs> Well, and also, you know, the descriptions of when he would search her for, you know, objects, how she would almost kind of start flirting with him as he did it. She would seem to be enjoying the attention. And again, he was this mysterious, educated foreigner from a from the, you know, from Eastern Europe who had who had come to the civilized land and was bringing with him a lot of new ideas. I'm sure that's very it's very exciting at the time, especially if you got to think most people at the age, they don't travel past their hometown. Well, it's also like the, during like my reading that I did in the cold opening when he thought that she was blowing air on people's necks during the seance uh -huh. and he he pulled her head onto his shoulder and covered her mouth with her yeah. hands, especially at that time in that culture. That's a charged gesture. That's a very <laughs> a, and that that I think is another element to the seances at this time with like. Think about how repressed everyone in this book is to the point where, like, there was that guide that they mentioned that was popular, like that that guidebook uh, that was popular that would tell women that it's just like one mustn't toy with her necklace, one mustn't toy with a handkerchief. A good woman is a woman who is perfectly still. Yeah, and that whole thing, <laughs> and it's just like the fact that like. And it it brings up this thing that I that that I read once uh, where a where a woman who was traveling in a Middle Eastern country that demand that that mandated by law full body veils for women. And she was on a bus that had a divider down the middle and women had to be in one part and men had to be in the other. And she said that a big problem on buses like that was men would sneak their hands through the gaps in the divider in order to grab women by the arm or by the shoulder 
And basically what she was explaining is by making the entire body something inappropriate to see or touch or interact with, you make every single part of the woman's body so inherently sexual that even a touch to the arm becomes an erotically charged gesture and therefore being touched there non-consensually becomes a sexual violation. We create these improprieties by deeming them improper. And I was... And then I was looking at these seances that we do where like it was suddenly in the context of this seance, it was appropriate for people to be holding each other's hands and resting their heads on each other's shoulders and having this actual physical contact with somebody who wasn't like your parents or your spouse. And I'm wondering if that's where this constant sexual undercurrent in these mediumships were coming from is they became the only parts where people they became the only parts of people's lives where they could be free and could be expressive and could fucking touch each other because touch starvation will make you insane. So really, it wasn't that all these mediums were sex-starved. It was because Fodor was getting a boner during all of these uh, seances. So so therefore, everybody else must be getting a boner. Either that or everyone was getting a boner. Yeah, I mean, they were probably orgies. Well, I mean, I don't know if they're orgies, but also you got to remember, like... They were orgies. If you think about a seance, though, even <laughs> even like you are just saying, you know, not just the hand-touching, but usually it's dark. Yeah. Usually you're in the dark with people who aren't your spouse and you're touching them and like anyone could just reach over and squeeze a knee and oh, isn't that tantalizing? And and also when you bring in the element of like the spirit guides and being possessed by creatures from the other side of the world and like the other side of the veil and that idea of like. Uh, yeah, you know that 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 joke that I've made in game a few times with the uh, with the circus performer. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, nothing you see here is real, so nothing you do here counts. Well, and also, I mean, I guess that whole idea of possession—that's a very—it is an almost sexual image, you know, being entered, being possessed. Um, I could see that. I mean, and what I find interesting is, I don't hear a lot of people saying modern seances are very sexy. And yeah. you know, I guess as we moved away away from uh, at least the same kind of sexual repression that they had in the 30s, um, and maybe that has maybe the sex has gone out of seances. I could be wrong. Maybe they're really groovy orgy times, and I just don't know. It. Listeners out there, if you attend <laughs> seance orgies, please email us, uh, noctificantpodcast at gmail.com, and let us know in detail, and uh, we'll make Rory read it. Okay. <laughs> sure. I'll read it. I don't care. <laughs> Towards the latter half of part two of the book, more hardships from Alma's past come to life. Before the bicycle accident that wreaked havoc on her health, she was the daughter of a playwright and a circus performer. Her uncle, who coincidentally was also named George, even taught her how to walk the tightrope, and she was poised to join her family in the world of fame and freedom. Her failing health, her marriage, and the birth of her son Donald ended those dreams. This revelation brings a new context to Alma's love of the attention she received due to her friend, Jimmy. Eventually, it looks as if the experiments will be coming to an end. Not only is the Institute fed up, but Alma's husband is tired of it, too. Les demands that she stops going to the Institute. 
and all hell breaks loose. The violence of the poltergeist increases and Les begins to feel that Alma is possessed. Many times he accuses her of being someone else. Her night terrors grow worse, more violent and frightening. She begins experiencing sleep paralysis and a phantom weight resting on her chest. Bloody punctures begin appearing on her neck. The incubus has been replaced by a vampire and Alma may have been replaced too. It seems that, in her fraud and deception, Alma has invited something real and malevolent into her life. And, by trying to shackle her, Leslie has thrown a match into a gas can. Another medium steps in to perform a therapeutic seance on the couple, trying to mend their flagging relationship. The medium, Eileen Garrett, encourages Alma to pursue her gifts further, but never forget that she is still Leslie's wife and should adhere to his authority over her. Simultaneously, another female medium, Mrs. Sharpton, refuses to sit in on any more of Alma's seances. According to her, Alma is only a weak psychic, but can absorb the powers of those around her to accomplish her feats. An ominous description of the woman now being tormented by a vampiric force. So that leads us to our next discussion question. In this book, Fodor posits that Alma has invited these new torments due to her fraudulent actions. Several other examples are given of mediums who start out as charlatans, but later encounter very real ghostly apparitions. In light of that, I have a multifold question for you guys. Do you think Alma was a fraud? Do you think it was a mix of truth and fiction? And do you believe in what Fodor asserts, that by deceiving the members of the Institute, Alma opened a doorway into something very real? Well... Uh, ultimately, I don't think that Alma was entirely a fraud. Now we know that there was that she did fraudulent things. Yeah. Right. But I don't think she was entirely a fraud, and I think a big part of that is because there are so many other people that witnessed the poltergeist activity. Now, one thing that I wrote down when I was because uh, I listened to this book um, on audiobook. One thing that I wrote down when I was listening to it was uh, it seemed like the poltergeist really didn't like it the first time that Les had brought up uh, Alma not going to the Institute anymore. It started smashing plates, if I recall correctly. Well, at least the incident I'm thinking about, it freaked out so much it was lifting their bed, tossing a chair and a bunch of other things around their room. Right. And then George, their tenant, came into the room and all of it stopped. Once he left, it started up again and even jammed a chair under the door. When George tried to come back in, he had to force his way through the door and it didn't stop uh, at all that night until Les told Alma to give in and say that she would go back to the Walton house. Now, I think, assuming that that story is true, yeah. th that the three of them aren't in on it and that that's not a made up story. Yeah. Yeah. Assuming that that story is true, it kind of adds up to other things I've read about poltergeists. If the poltergeist liked it more than likely, well, or okay, let me start over. The poltergeist probably liked Alma going to the Walton house. Why? Because it was it was lowering her constitution. It was lowering her ability to defend herself. Because that's actually a really good point. So now the poltergeist could feed off of Alma even more because that's who it was. Uh, that's who the the entity was obviously targeting was Alma. Well, and also in theory, it could feed on anyone else at Walton House because the Countess felt sick during every seance. Assuming that it was following her, I don't think it was. Oh, okay. And the reason I don't think it was is because things still happened when Alma wasn't at the house. But 
if Alma's going into this place where they're performing seances with all these, quote, fraudulent mediums, now you're essentially playing with a fucking Ouija board. Yeah. You've got all these people trying to reach out to the other side to do God knows what with God knows with God knows what. And that's going to be influencing Alma, too. And now you've got that influence coming back to the house, lowering your constitution, letting the poltergeist feed on it even more and scaring Les even more, scaring George even more, and therefore increasing whatever dopamine equivalent that the poltergeist is getting out of this. Yeah. So I don't think that Alma was entirely a fraud. I think she was, um, I think she did eventually, she did give in to fraudulent tendencies to continue getting the attention that she was desiring from Fodor, whether that was, uh, because of, you know, being, you know, because of a crush, because of the money, whatever it was. She was obviously, there was obviously an attention gain there for Alma. Um, but ultimately, I think at least it started out as something very real to her and her family. Yeah. And because I, I've experienced poltergeist-esque activity in my life, I'm very convinced that one of the condos that I lived in with one of my friends was very haunted, or at least that something was following him around. Um, and fucked with our fucked with the house that we lived in. But... I, 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 so I guess in answer to your question, yeah, I think it's a mix of truth and fiction. Um, but yeah. I think there is, I think there's a lot that happened that, uh, the investigators at the Institute didn't take into consideration. They expected the poltergeist to be with Alma wherever she went. And I personally think that that wasn't the case. I, I because always, they thought Alma was the poltergeist. Right. And I think that the poltergeist was feeding off of Alma, but was staying at her house because I don't, I've, I, I this was actually the first time I'd ever heard of a pol a poltergeist traveling. Usually from my understanding, they were pretty, they're homebodies. Yeah. And I've heard of them traveling before, but it's not common. I haven't, uh, but that said, I can't really name where I've heard that. It just feels like I've heard it. All right. But um, I guess for my answer, I'm much of the same line. I, As I said earlier, I think it's both and. I think that there is a real phenomenon, but it got muddied by Alma's deceptions for whatever reason she did them. I did suggest uh, one idea before we recorded this to uh, Jay, and Jay shot it down pretty soundly. Uh, but I also theorized that what if... Alma wasn't even really aware of the frauds. And what I mean by that is you have very clearly someone who has a lot of mental issues going. I mean, she tried to murder her husband with a knife. Let's not forget that. True. That was during her spell of anthrax poisoning. Yeah, Once she, in a delirious state, she uh, walked into the walked into the kitchen where her husband was and she picked up a knife and she tried to stab him in the back. Yeah. So I, I don't... <laughs> Alma is not the picture of mental health in my book. That said, I think uh, I, I did wonder if it was possible that the uh, fake apports and all the things that she did fraud, she did so unconsciously, like her hands were moving on their own. Jay pointed out that that is a level of profound insanity that would have had other symptoms that would have been noticed. Uh, but that said, I guess my counter to that is we only had Fodor's notes to go off of. This whole yes. book was built off of Fodor's notes. And so if Fodor didn't notice them, maybe uh, maybe that's maybe it's still possible. That said, you ha again, you'd have to be profoundly insane. And also he was too busy looking at her vagina. 
to be clear though he never looked at her vagina as far as we know he just wanted other people to look in her vagina and tell him about it yeah and and actually after alma figured out that that was on the table she uh during one of the strip searches was like flashing her vagina to the searchers and like look nothing in there and to to be clear i i i want to slightly retract what i what i said about the about it's just like about i don't think that it was possible she was an unconscious fraud just I was thinking about it more later, and it's it's entirely possible that Alma had an undiagnosed case of dissociative identity disorder, and it's possible that the one who was conducting the frauds was not Alma. It was a mundane thing, as in it was an altar that was coming to that was coming to the surface and playing pranks for its own unknown motivations and you know in some ways you could make an argument that uh that's the psychological equivalent of a poltergeist is this this unknown unphysical thing that will take possession of your body and do things without your consent because it has unknown motivations you know uh something that i just that i thought about uh, a little bit ago um that i don't think they ever talked about in this book and that kind of surprises me uh we know that she had, that alma had this vast medical history of things that was wrong with her right yeah do you know what one of the side effects of uh the radi- radium is that uh she took when she was when she was battling cancer what fluid retention it's the, one of the most common side effects. And her belly was swelling up during seances. Yep. Well, she's still on the radium then, though. It doesn't matter. That shit, that shit stays in your system. And she might have been taking drugs like that. A lot of, mind you, my very limited understanding, a lot of uh, cancer patients take those kind of medications for a long time, even post-cancer. It's, because they're still fighting the the cancerous cells in their body. Also, mm-hmm. at the time and and where she at the time and where she was, it's entirely possible she was being exposed to radium through other means and might not have even known it. D- due to the neglect of the English government, it's possible it was in her fucking water supply. Yeah, it's true. It's just uh, I, that made me think because I. Yeah, you know, I wrote down in my notes like what are the side effects of radium because one of the things that they never brought up was the that the potential of some of these things that were literally physically going wrong with her um were from uh the side effects of all the I'm sure all the medications that she was on. Also, um fluid retention and things like that that we know like that still happens to this day and we don't know why some people have that. Like my grandma was having terrible fluid retention throughout her whole body before she passed away yeah and the doctors do not know why it's 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 very common in hospice patients it is actually it's actually something they frequently complain complain about as one of the sources of their physical distress is like i'm swelling up because my body won't get rid of excess fluid anymore so now think somebody who's literally gone through hell and back through their body I guarantee you her body felt years older than it was. It does not surprise me even a little bit that her body might just have been shutting down at times. Yeah. So actually, you know, it's interesting. So on this topic of 
either due to mental illness or maybe even side effects of medication or trauma from her uh, various injuries and her medical issues that she was disassociating, that she was somehow doing this uh, unconsciously. And what's interesting is we do get a little support for that theory in the text itself, although the source is a little nebulous because it is another medium spirit guide. <laughs> uh, the Through another medium, they speak to the medium spirit guide, Uvani. Yeah. Uh, and I have a quote here. Uvani told the investigators to treat Alma with trust and kindness, regardless of whether the vampire story was wholly true. I think you're dealing with an obsession, explained Uvani. Therefore, it can be difficult or dangerous, for you know an obsession becomes a reality. You have seen it happen in a man who has, for instance, shell shock. In certain phases of mind, he has a disassociation. He moves away from the mechanics of the body, gets in contact with someone who may be looking for a stimulation of this nature, and so you have a change in personality. Um... And I mean, that that is roughly describing what we're saying. That'd be an 1800s way of describing, you know, a disassociative state. Yeah. So we got we got a ghost who agrees with me. And that ghost may have actually been Eileen Garrett's own dissociative personality. Yeah. According to her. Yeah. It's like disassociative inception. Yeah, she she said later in her life that she was like that she said something along the lines of sometimes I think I just have multiple personalities yeah. and I just can control them to make them seem like spirit guides. Well, She's like I think that might actually just be what's happening. Well, I mean cuz she was she was one of the only mediums that actually supported Fodor's ideas that there might be an internal psychological explanation for paranormal events. Yeah. Um she yeah. was also later in her career label she was she was a divisive figure uh throughout her life because she was one of the ones where half the people that studied her are like she's a fraud and not even a particularly good one and about half the people who spoke to her were like she's a fucking god well and what's really interesting is actually she uh later in her life went to america and she actually was the founder of the american psychical uh institute yep which is where fodor landed after he <laughs> lost his job and had to leave england yep so uh fodor just good can't to have <laughs> fodor just can't seem to keep a steady career there's and, probably a reason for that yeah and she and she gave him a job after she after she basically said, I'm not talking about the fielding case anymore. The next person who brings up the fielding case to me is getting shot. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? If I was Eileen Garrett, I would also be resorting to physical violence to be getting away from the fielding case well, because I, it's just weird after a while. Well, and also after it kind of it goes went bad. And, you know, they, it started coming, you know, after Fodor's reputation, I just got trashed because of it. I could see why Eileen was like, I, maybe I don't want to be involved in this. Maybe I want to distance myself a little and save what's left of my reputation. I don't think his reputation was as great as he's making it out to be if he was also fighting a lawsuit about how he's uh, how he's just trying to disprove mediums the entire time. OK, correct. I'm just going off of what we have in the book, which, again, I mean. I actually, I, I got to correct something I said earlier. I said this whole book is based off Fodor's notes. I don't know that for sure. I assume that Kate Summerskelt did a, quite a bit of research beyond those notes. She did. Yeah. She mentions it at the end of the book. Oh, did she? Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I forgot that I was too distracted by, you know, everything else. The fucking linen cloth being birthed out of a woman's vagina mid-seance. I, I, I do have to say, though, that scene gave me the funniest image in the whole book, which is uh, which is Fodor picking that cloth up, and pressing it to it. his nose, yeah. taking a big whiff and going, Vagina! It's vaginal discharge. <laughs> Five minutes old. She's eating too much asparagus. Yeah, he would know. He would. He would definitely know because he was getting all the pussy in the world. What? I, I was making a joke because he's he wasn't getting laid. I mean, I assume he was sleeping with his wife. I don't know. I don't know. They have a lot had of children. I, and yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I got a five-year-old. I had sex once five years ago. So he had sex. Yeah, but that doesn't mean he's a professional vagina smeller. <laughs> I I really want to know what correspondence course you need to complete to get like your badge as the professional vagina smeller. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I kept I kept asking why were people in the past so obsessed with sex and then we're fucking doing this shit. We we've always been obsessed with sex. We're just we're just masturbating monkeys all the way back through history. We're just monkeys whacking it. Jesus Christ. Also, so, sex is good. So to, so to, so to bring, us, bring us home for the final part of that question, uh, the belief that some people expressed that it's like, oh, yeah, but the vampire's real. It's because Alma told lies. And now there's a vampire because of her lies. What the fuck do we think about that? About this, this belief that the Psychical Institute advanced a few times if it's just like, oh, yeah, frauds always get it in the end because uh, uh, demons show up and beat the shit out of them. So I have uh, I'm of two minds on this. So on uh, one, I don't think that's true. Um, uh, and but that said um i there is a common kind of motif not only in literature but in folklore where if you know you knock on enough doors asking for the devil eventually you'll get him um and i do think wolf well i do think there's something to that in that if you put out the expectation to the world you're going to increase the odds you're going to come across it um Thank that's, you, John Keel. That said, what I th- yeah, exactly. That said, what I think I don't think that's happening here, uh, and the reason I don't think it's happening here is because the vampire seems to follow too much of a logical escalation of frauds. And what I mean by that is, uh, she she started to get discovered for her apports for things like that, and yeah. very suddenly she's being assaulted by an incubus, and then uh, Fodor starts asking all these questions about sex that make her uncomfortable. And then it escalates to a vampire sucking blood. So there's no sex involved. It. I'm not saying that that was an intentional, willful manipulation on her part. I do think that there was she was experiencing maybe even only on a psychical level, maybe physical, some form of assault happening there from the poltergeist activity. That was actually one of the phenomena I think is I think happened uh, yeah. based off just her raw visceral reaction to it. But the vampire experience specifically, I I don't know. I, I I just didn't buy that explanation that, well, you lied too much about psychic powers, so now vampires come for you. I saw that as either that is just the next es- escalation of the fraud or or it was just how the phenomenon continued to evolve as her psychic state continued to degradate. In that, you know, again, her the encounters went from breaking glasses in other rooms and moving some stuff around to her being raped. 
And like that, right. th- there is, I think that that to me speaks a lot to the damage that was being done with each and every seance session to her mind. Yes. And the damage being done by all of the suspicion that she was being put under by Fodor and the other Institute members trying to prove she wasn't a fraud. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I, I think, I don't know. I think I mentioned this or talked about this uh, in the Passport to Magonia episode, but like, when we're dealing with these other entities, putting a name to it is so hard, you know, like them saying definitively, like, or trying to imply definitively that it's a, a poltergeist, an incubus, a vampire, all that. It's like, we can't, there's almost no fucking way to actually know that. No, there isn't, you know? And so when they start saying this, that, or the other thing about it might be this, it might be that, or it's this because this happened, it's going to escalate. Well, and what's interesting is is that reminds me back uh, from Secret Teachers of the Western World, the whole, I guess, the left brain need to categorize things. Right. And that's what we're seeing there is you're trying to put a name to something that might not really be able to be named. Right. And I, if what we're if if we just called it the phenomenon and treated it as just the phenomenon, how much different might it have been? I don't know. I mean, you know, because we're not. It, it's almost it almost goes back to the whole. It's I think it's I want to say it's uh uh like uh I don't know where it started, but it makes me think of the Fae. But um, n- with a name comes power. Yeah. So by giving it a, a a category, a title, a name. You're giving this entity more power. You're giving this other more power. You're, you're giving it clothes to dress up in. Exactly, and it might not have even known what it what what it was trying to do or trying to be. But now it's when, you know, Fodor says, "Up," oh, you know, or whomever the medium says, "It's a vampire." Now this is what's in Alma's brain. So now the the entity, the other, the phenomenon can act as such because that's how it's going to get the best reaction as of now. You know, and that's interesting because that is a very John Keel concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, like I said earlier, once you have a belief, the phenomenon will adjust to enforce that belief. Where do you think I got that idea from? I, I hope you've had an original thought pass through that head. Of yours. I, I don't get those that often. You know, <laughs> I just kind of like take all the shit I hear, jumble it up, and regurgitate it out of my mouth. So, I was also I was also having a thought of like you know, Nick, you mentioned that it seems that like the phenomenon would kind of alter its course whenever the institute was trying to alter their course, and also Rory was talking about how. From their interpretation, the poltergeist seemed to be feeding on Alma and abusing her because it was getting something out of it. I wonder if every time it changed up what it was doing, it was to to keep the horror fresh. Yeah. Because people will become numb to literally anything after a while. It, yeah. It, well, and Nick had pointed out, or you had pointed out, you pointed out when uh, she was walking out of the bathroom and all the stuff was just following along. She was becoming numb to it and then what a little bit after that it escalates yeah and it it's possible that the the poltergeist jimmy the phenomenon whatever it was it was just like well i've been let's call him (laughs) j-dog i've been sexually violating her and she seems to have become numb to that better start sucking her blood and possessing her so her husband's too afraid of her to be around her just gotta just gotta find new ways to keep isolating her yeah like i mean i 
I think that that is very possible. But uh, yeah, I I also am not. If there is any truth to the idea that being a fraud makes you more uh, vulnerable to actual entities coming into your life, I don't think it's necessarily this idea of being punished by some kind of cosmic intelligence because I, I think that's inherently a little bit stupid. I, I think it might just be, you know, like you said, knock on enough doors being like, hey, is Satan in there? Eventually, yes, Satan will be in there. And uh, if, the, if, if, if people being frauds attracted negative attention, we would have a lot less of evangelical preachers in the world. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good point. They'd all they'd just be like, I have cast the demons out of this gay boy. And then just a fucking portal opens up under their feet and just the big red hand comes out and just is like, and into the depths. So actually on that note, I will um I will put on my Fodor hater hat <laughs> uh and bring up I th- honestly, the whole concept, I, well, I found that in- idea interesting. The whole frauds attract, you know, negative entities. They'll actually make their lives hell. I found that interesting. Um, but my read on that was less, this is a real metaphysical concept and more, this is something that Fodor told Alma to try to control her and stop her from playing these games. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was probably a manipulation. It No, I mean, it, I have... The quote where he confronted her and said this effectively, um, there are punishments. There were punishments as well as rewards for following a psychic path, he said, and her ghastly night experiences were probably brought about by what she had done. If she didn't keep away from mischief, he told Alma, there was no telling what would happen. She might think that she was riding the devil, but it was possible that the devil was riding her. Yeah. If it definitely and, rings to me like this is Fodor trying to get Alma to cut out the fraud so he can prove that she's a real medium. And, cut the shit. <laughs> Please. And, I want to help you. And that kind of that statement and that attitude kind of informs another interpretation of this book uh, to me. And that's that. There's a lot of weird gender politics going on in this book. Um, again, there there's this narrative of of Fodor and other people constantly sexualizing the feats that female mediums perform, and the fraudulent female mediums being accused of having sexual hysteria, and that's why they're doing this. And Fodor's wife apparently had psychic gifts that she wanted to develop and work on and Fodor forbid her from doing so. And then there's also the fact that part of Leslie's whole problem with this thing was he was jealous. He was jealous of his wife getting all this attention from these people and he was jealous of this new power that his wife seemed to be exhibiting. and. I'm just I'm wondering if that weird sex and control was wrapped up in the fact that on some level and not just Fodor, other males involved in this. I'm wondering if on some level they were angry that women would dare to step out of their place by becoming psychics. 
and that if there was a weird subconscious fear of a loss of control over the female gender if they kept manifesting these gifts because one of the in my personal interpretation of gender politics the sexualization of women doing of women exhibiting power is is an attempt to regain control over them like i in my personal interpretation it's why jobs like nursing and being a teacher and being a librarian are so sexualized in porn is because that those are jobs that for a long time it was acceptable for women to have therefore they became sexualized to re-put that back in its proper place in society see I, I don't know. I, I, I can see the point. Yeah. Um, I don't have really a rebuttal, but on I feel like I would need some time to process and um, research a little before yeah. I could say anything on that topic. Um, I, I tend to um, I, I just tend to agree with you on these things because it makes sense. And I also have no rebuttal. OK. <laughs> That might just be me being a, a crazy person well, with no, unprocessed no. trauma well, I, I, from no, say this no, my I, transition. I, no, I agree with like your like the the line that you drew makes sense. I just I I I don't know. I've never I've never experienced it. I I will know? say this. I will say this. I do genuinely believe Fodor wanted to find a real medium. Yes. I think he he genuinely wanted her to actually have power, and I don't think his conscious intent was ever to control her. I think as the situation spiraled out of hand, he started to believe he had to control her. Um, but again, I think by that point it was kind of it was a runaway train. They yeah. were just feet toxically feeding each other in this feedback loop that eventually exploded. And and that 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 point I brought up, that's not even necessarily about Fodor and Alma. That that's more about the larger phenomenon of female mediums and the weird and in a society like ours that is that has such harsh gender lines drawn and such a especially in 1930s england such a such a firm stance on what men should do and what women should do and I feel like gender couldn't not be a part of what's going on here and I feel like I feel like it's almost impossible that sexism did not inform a lot of the decisions and a lot of the uh, a lot of how female mediums were being portrayed at this time. I mean, sure. And like we know, there were mediums who were openly sexualized, were going to their seances was almost like a sex show because they'd be yeah. uh, revealing themselves. They'd be taking their clothes off and they'd be pulling ectoplasm out of their vagina. Yep. That I mean, that is Thanks, a very Peter sexually B. charged image. In light of these conflicting and disturbing revelations, both Alma and Fodor deteriorate. Alma rapidly loses weight and her mental state becomes increasingly fragile. She is plagued with anger and anxiety, mood swings, and bizarre fits. Her husband, who can't make up his mind on if he believes her or not, goes back on his promise and tries to once again shorten her leash. When the Institute informs her that they can no longer pay for her services, she tries to put a stop to the whole thing. 
Fodor, however, won't allow it. He twists her arm, manipulates her, threatens to expose her as a fraud to the entire community. Part of this is because he can't stand to watch another project go up in smoke, possibly taking his career with it. But another part is because of his unhealthy fixation on Alma. Seemingly caught in an addictive and abusive cycle, Fodor escalates his control of Alma. Repeatedly, he hypnotizes her to urge her to gain weight and becomes verbally abusive during these sessions. Obsessed with determining the extent of her fraud, he begins fantasizing about ever more invasive searches of her body to locate hidden apports. Alma, for her part, continues to play along. She tells stories, speaks in other voices, summons expensive rings and small animals from thin air. For a while, it seems that this disturbing dance will never end. But, of course, it does. War goes from a possibility to a reality, and bombs begin falling on England. The Institute moves on to other projects without Fodor, who has been fired for obvious but not outright stated reasons. He leaves England altogether, feeling there is no longer a future for him there. As war breaks out, the Fieldings flee to the coast to hide from the air raids. George helps them move, but does not come with them. In 1947, the National Institute for Psychical Research ceases operation entirely, feeling like a quiet end to a certain era of time and paranormal research. Gone are the vibrant and surreal seances of the 19th and 20th centuries, with their flower mediums, their spirit guides, and hypnosis-induced revelations. In our modern era, the case of Alma Fielding seems like an especially curious one, and it's hard to understand how it could have gone on for so long or escalated so far. But the saying holds true. You just had to be there. <laughs> so the beginning and the end of this book, th th this book is kind of it is kind of curtained by the by the beginning sparks of war and then by its actual explosion into a full on conflict. And it's it, 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 as as uh, Nick said, it's kind of a it's kind of a pattern just sort of woven throughout the entire book. The fact that everyone involved in this book is very conscious of the fact that another world war is coming and they're all very anxious about that fact. Um, these circumstances are what kind of created that boom of interest in the paranormal and spiritualism itself was born here in America in the wake of the Civil War. And we here at Nativigant are well aware that crisis changes culture and often has masses of people searching for answers kind of collectively. Uh, and we, at this point in time in our civilization, are facing a multitude of crises all at once. <laughs> Like, probably more than we could count on both hands if we really wanted to address them all. Uh, so in the face of those crises that our civilization is now enduring, uh, what sort of changes do you think are on the horizon, spiritually speaking? Because things like this always kind of create changes in that subculture. Um how do you guys think our future in the mystic and the strange will be shaped by the horrors that we are currently witnessing? Well, um, I think my answer to that is I'm going to bring up aliens. Um, what, what I mean by that is if you look on, I mean, I'm, I, I, this is not news. Uh, New York Times has posted an article about it. Uh, CNET has, Military.com, Fox News, although, you know, 
that last one might not be that reputable, but basically, apparently, it's not. over the course of coron- the coronavirus pandemic, UFO sightings rose dramatically across the board. Part of that was because people were home, right? Um, and more prone to be st- spending hours looking at the sky, slipping slowly into madness. But the the point being, um, there does seem to be certain uh, key metrics that are on the rise right now as we have moved deeper and deeper into this pandemic. So there is a part of me that does wonder if, you know, kind of like the Mothman, if there is some sort of cosmic mechanism that starts thinning the worlds and maybe we start seeing these things as we approach major calamities. Um, and I'm also thinking about some of the stories that were reported of winged humanoids around the Twin Towers shortly before 9-11 or, you know, that one photo of people seeing the demon and the smoke and things like that. Um, and I don't know if that's because there again, I don't know if that's because there is a cosmic mechanism at play or if the proximity of that trauma, I guess, opens people's minds up, maybe has them more on edge, more entertaining the the unentertainable like, oh, God, what if a bomb drops on my house tomorrow? I mean, to some people, that is as absurd a thought as a ghost, right? It, it is something, it is a disruption of your everyday cycle, of your everyday world, of something that shouldn't be there. You know, a ghost is just as unwanted in your living room as I assume a bomb would be, although personally, I'd rather have the ghost there um, if I had a choice between the two. You can get rid of a ghost with sage. Once a bomb's in your living room, that I mean, yeah, it's bad. Waving herbs at it's not going to do much. Uh, my point is, I don't know. I mean, who who could predict how spirituality is going to change? Because tomorrow, a gray alien could land on the White House lawn and share with us the you know Hermes Trismegistus's emerald tablet, which apparently came from the aliens and it has the truth about the universe on it, and that's going to change everything forever. I, if I had to guess, I think, um, this is my hope, people are going to start moving away from certainties. And okay. what I mean by that is what we've seen over and over again in this pandemic, especially I'm thinking about QAnon, these constant moving goalposts of, of this, you know, on this date coming up where, you know, there's going to be a great awakening and suddenly the world is going to turn against the left. On this date coming up, suddenly Trump is going to be president and it doesn't happen. But basically my point being, I think that we, we might see people, at least my hope is, embracing that uncertainty a little more, embracing the I don't know. Because again, and this is this might be a little bit of a preview for uh, our next episode, but uh, I don't know, I think, is the str- is the most powerful sentence you can utter in the world of paranormal because it means that you're still open. It means that you're still open to possibilities, to different ideas, uh, to different reality constructs. And I think that when you're open, that's when you start figuring out stuff or at least you you start to find some interesting connections that maybe haven't been thought of before. Um, so I, that's what I hope is going to happen. Uh, for all I know, we're going to be worshiping the pande- the coronavirus in a year. I don't know. I find that that very hard to believe. So do I, but, you know, if a gun's to my head, I'm going to bend down to that altar. Fair enough. So, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said, and I, I kind of want to, like, I, I actually, I agree with what you said, just in general. I want to take a different spin at the question. So I think that the world is going to move in potentially a couple of different directions, right? And I'm hoping that we don't go the direction that is heavily negative and would lead to war, right? So I'm going to focus on the positive. 
right now, I mean, we're in America, so I can only really frame a lot of what I experience based on what I see around me, which is happening here in America. And right now we are at a almost a breaking point of um, different views, okay? But here's the thing, and something that I think a lot of people don't realize is that the vast, the vast majority of Americans believe in, um, in, a, in, in the more positive side of things, okay? It seems like it's not because when the the haters, the QAnoners, and you know the Marjorie Taylor Greens are yelling all of this hate. It seems so loud because hate is only, or hate seems so loud because it's yelled by so few people. Okay, the only way that we're gonna combat this is with what and. and a lot of leftists are going to hate me for this, but it, we have to kill them with kindness. It sucks because they hate everything about us, especially you and I, Jay. Yeah. But the truth is that we're never going to get anywhere by continuing to spread their, you know, or by spitting venom back inside, back to their face, right? And that's that's really hard for me because I'm such a... Mm, uh, charged person. Like I'm a passionate person. I get angry very easily, but the truth is until we can move past all of this hate, we're not going to go anywhere. Right. And whether or not that means that these people just have to go away, whether or not that means that we just have to wait for them to die out. I, I don't know, but hopefully get some of them to join the rest of us and that in would the modern be, day. That, and that would be the goal. But I think this comes back to um, something that we've talked about a lot, and that is the evolution of consciousness. Yeah. Okay. There is still a, a huge portion of the United States that lives in the side of consciousness that is the patriot, the, the I, right? I believe this. I'm not thinking. They're not thinking globally. They're not thinking long. Uh, long, uh, they're not thinking long term, uh, in terms of their, their way of life. Okay. People like us, at least from my understanding of the three of us, we think very globally in we are one people, right? At least I do. You know, I, I really like the idea of harming you, like that you, that you've said before, harming you is harming me kind of deal. Like that resonates really strongly with me. Um, and I think until we get more people that have, that evolve their consciousness to that kind of level and almost see beyond their beyond their guideline book that they believe is truth, yeah, that was a shot. Um, we're we're going to be stuck. But I I I see the signs that we're heading in all the right directions. Embrace. I don't know. Exactly. Be a weirdo. Be okay with with not knowing. Be okay with the idea of the fascinating, the idea of the unknown, the idea of the crazy, because honestly, your life will be better for it. Thinking somebody's a hack just because they believe in ghosts makes you kind of a shitty person. Like, 
Who fucking cares? Like consensus reality, in my opinion, is largely a myth. Yeah. Like it, it's real to that person. So treat it like you'd want your real experiences to be treated. Like even going through this book, we didn't like because parts of Alma's story was written off or because parts of Alma's story were fraudulent, we could easily write her off completely as a fraud. Easily. But we won't because that doesn't make sense. Well, and what's interesting there is I actually have something from the author here from an interview she did about this book um, where basically she said that it didn't matter if the supernatural was real. What mattered is it was real to those experiencing and investigating it. So again, much in line with Peter Biebergall. Um And one thing that I noticed about this book, which I also saw a couple of reviews pointed out, the author didn't didn't shame Alma. For the fraud, it didn't shame Fodor either. They were just presented as two people with flaws, and this is how they their interactions with each other led to an unfortunate end. Um, and I think that I really appreciate that. I think it was a very raw, honest look at just humanity. And I think to me, that's what this book is about at the yeah. end. Is it's it's this very interesting view of the human creature at a very interesting point intersection in history. Yeah. No, I agree. And. Uh, in a very delicate time, both uh, for society and for themselves individually. Yeah, for sure. Do we answer your question? Yes, you did. Yay. Yay. What about you? What are your thoughts on the future? Uh, That's accurate. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think what, I think you're both made, both making interesting points. Uh, like Nick saying that we might we might start having to enter a point where people are have to be more accepting of not knowing things because my problem with spiritualism and psychical research is that both of them are so convinced that they had the only answer that was worth believing in when it was very clear that it's like no you're both at least half wrong and i I think you're I think you're I think you're right Rory that we need to evolve our consciousness past anger and hate being the basis of so much of what we do and and I think we might be getting there just because things like things like restorative justice and the obligation of people to take care of each other seem to be becoming more mainstream ideas and I do, I do think the coronavirus is going to um, irrevocably change our global society. It it, it already has. Yeah. Um. So I, I don't know. I think maybe, I think maybe disease might become a more prominent part of our paranormal research. I think we might have, I think we might have a resurgence in people attempting to claim that disease has supernatural origins because so many people are already starting to say that it's like, no, the disease is a punishment and we deserve it, which I spread by 5G. Yeah. It's like, and I let, let me make something very clear. 
anybody who says that the coronavirus is mankind's punishment for our destruction of the environment is a fucking moron who doesn't understand how capitalism works because the majority of environmental destruction is the direct result of a tiny handful of people and blaming random suburban random suburbanites for environmental destruction is basically just ignorance bullshit evangelical bullshit wow also i am so tired of being blamed for what Jeff Bezos and the fucking De Beers have done. I am so tired of it. There. Well, you're not wrong. I mean, it, it's, it's a lot like, I mean, you said the whole 5G thing. It's, they're, trying to pin, they're trying to pin it on anything but themselves, be it you know, climate change, be it the political climate in the country, be it whatever they want, because... I mean, I know we're not a political podcast, but I'm going to make my point anyway. And that's like the whole framework behind so much of the ideology that is behind, like that's behind, that's opposed to progress. Okay. Is based upon um, the foundation of the founders framework, right? Which is flawed to begin with. And two, uh, the belief in small government, which is flawed in so many ways but beyond that the, the it's all built up behind that christian faith okay yeah. and like that you know they the government shouldn't be involved in your personal beings they shouldn't have or your personal life there shouldn't be that you know they shouldn't have control over this that the other thing whatever um but it's all and and then my point is and i'm going to because I was about to go on a ramble. My point is that if you actually care about politics, you actually look at right versus left, even though a two-party system is fucking stupid. If you look at right versus left and you actually look at the things that were, that were implemented by the people or implemented by the right, so conservatives, that were voted in by small government believing Christians, literally, literally, literally nothing that they put into place for the last two presidents that they had did anything more than give the government more control and more power and put them further and further deeper into the into corporate po- or into the pockets of corporations and therefore continue to enhance the the environmental destroying capitalism and rant good rant uh, but yeah and i i'm hoping that we start to to move away from that idea of of cosmic punishment and the idea of the all of humanity needs to be punished for the sins of the ultra wealthy because again that is that is conservative that that is conservative protestantism specifically its christian rhetoric more broadly and i really for my sanity I need that to stop being the dominant thought form in the West. I real and that it, that's part of the reason why I didn't like the whole Fodor's rhetoric of, well, Alma, you told lies, so you invited this horrible thing that happened to you. Of it's like, can, can we stop? Can we stop with this idea that there's any that that people inherently deserve suffering? Can we just fucking stop that? Yeah, no, I agree. 
because uh, believing any one person is inherently bad or evil is mm, for the most part wrong, with the exception of maybe a select few. Yeah, I, I will say there are a couple people in history that I look at and I don't I'm not going to say that they were born evil, but holy shit, if there was ever anyone. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like Bundy. <laughs> yeah, no, there are exceptions to everything, but the vast majority of people are are yeah. inherently evil people. I, I agree with that. Um, So I know I know we're probably reaching the end here. I do have a little bit about the author, if you would like. Go right ahead. So Kate Summerscale, who, again, fantastic author, was born in London, England, in 1965. Uh, she was raised between Japan, England and Chile. Uh, she attended the Bendales School. And afterwards, she went to Oxford and then Stanford, earning her M.A. in journalism. Damn. Yeah. Uh, she wrote for The Independent and then The Daily Telegraph. Uh, her articles have appeared in The Guardian, all major newspapers in the U.K. Yep. Uh, her books, honestly, mostly have been about true crime. Uh, Mr. Witcher or the murder at the Road Hill House, the Queen of oh, actually the Queen of White Whale. Okay, I don't think it's true crime. It's something similar though. Uh, the Wicked Boy, the Mystery of the Victorian Child Murderer. These are some of her previous works. And interestingly, I found every single book she's published has won awards, <laughs> uh, in, including this one. Uh, the Haunting of Alma Fielding was shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize. And actually, this is her first supernatural book. Um, and she. Just was sitting. I read an interview, and apparently, how this book came about is she was sitting there one day and just thought, "I want to write a supernatural book." And so she went looking and stumbled upon Fodor's original notes. Oh wow! She like the Fielding case uh, really kind of came to her over the process of making this. Um, and her statement was is that she was less interested in the supernatural as much as she was interested in the psychological life, which leads to or comes from a supernatural experience. I think suits our conversation pretty well. Um, and the last bit of news I have here is that New Pictures has recently optioned the book to turn it into a miniseries for TV. Neat. Yeah. So well, I will definitely watch it. Yeah, we'll have some trash to ingest. Hell yeah. Uh, no, it's a housekeeping. Uh, so please, please, please rate, uh, rate, subscribe, comment, do whatever sort of things you need to do to inform your streaming option of choice that you like us. It does help us. Um, also, we are here. We like, want to speak with you. We want to interact with you. Uh, we please email us at noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. Uh, at Noctivigant Pod, and I'm at Mix Rory Wicks. I'm at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. I also run a Tumblr blog on uh, where I post all of the memes that I make for the podcast. Uh, so go to Tumblr and follow Noctivigant Podcast. They are choice memes. Also, we do have a Reddit account, so if you want to get in touch with us, search for the Noctivigant Podcast user, and you can send us a DM. We'll chat with you. Also. I control that account. I'm I'm in Reddit all the time, commenting on weird stuff. So it's true. you might get, see me around. It's true. I get your emails uh, from the responses. Yeah, yeah. So uh, no, it, um, so thank you all so much for listening. And I believe we have a wonderful book lined up for you for next next episode. We yes. are going to be reading uh, "Theoretical Weirdo" by John Tenney, our hometown hero. Yeah, he's uh he's like only like fifty miles from us right now, which is really cool. Fifty? It's not that far. I don't know where I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like a 20 minute drive to where he lives. Nick, cool. when we went to the Detroit Zoo with your mother, uh, at one point you left me alone with her and she immediately began complaining about your inability to follow any sort of physical directions to get from one place to the next. <laughs> he, Nick, you get lost uh, walking out the front door.
I have many problems, and I will not <laughs> apologize for any of them. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Well, anything else for us, Jay? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> well, on that note, stay safe out there. Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. What the fuck was that? <laughs> You know what they didn't tell us at any point in the book? Who kept the vaginal rag? I really hope it wasn't Fodor.